This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Wage garnishment. It's a pretty scary term when, when you have the idea that somebody could actually start taking your wages without you knowing, or even if you knew but had no control to stop it. Blair, a big question for me when I started thinking about this and reading about it, how fast can a creditor take my income? And that's got to be unbelievably stressful for somebody in that situation. Yeah, I would generally say that the clients that are subject to a wage garnishment, you know, they're the most urgent of the urgent situations that we see. So, you know, even everyone that answers our phone at Sands and Associates, if they know there's a wage garnishment, we're trying to book somebody, you know, same day. Let's see if someone's in between meetings. Can they talk to the person right away? Because that can be just, you know, quite life altering if suddenly you're not you're expecting your full paycheck and you get 70 percent of your full paycheck or maybe less than that, depending on the situation. So absolutely wage garnishment is something that can really literally smack somebody in the face with their debt situation. It can really reiterate to them, oh, this is so serious that someone's either taking court action against you or the government has decided they're out of patience and they've decided to really start intercepting your money before it comes to you. So obviously it's very severe. In terms of how quickly it can start, well, making a single payment late isn't usually a severe consequence. But if you have a pattern of that, or if you have a bunch of debt that remains unpaid, your creditors are likely to start taking escalating steps to get you to resume payments and get them repaid. Every creditor has their own policies and their own practices, but you can anticipate some of these actions to start happening and then eventually escalating. So if you start missing payments, oftentimes there'll be late fees charged to you and perhaps some NSF fees if your payments bounced. Um, creditors will often raise your interest rate. If you're a delinquent, they'll take away any preferred interest rate and charge you a much higher rate. Uh, Of course, they'll put notations on your credit report. So they'll make it more difficult for you to incur other debt, give a heads up to creditors that this person is having trouble meeting their obligations. Uh, They might start to lock down the account and you'll find, well, you can't incur any new debt until you get this balance paid off. Typically, it's after three months where you've started to miss significant payments on an account. That's when they start to turn your account over to a collection agency. And sometimes it's an in-house collections department, but quite often it's a third party where essentially the person you borrowed money from or the institution has decided at that point they've given up on the customer relationship. They want to get the heavy hitters involved, which is a third party collection agency. Um, And that's when people can really start to feel harassed and highly stressed when collection agents start to contact them. And there's some rules around what a debt collector can do, but a couple things are surprising. You know, there's no maximum number uh, to the number of times they can call you in a day. So I have some people tell me, or they're calling me 20 or 30 times a day. And my response is, well, as long as it's within the hours of 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. through the week and 1 to 5 p.m. on Sundays, they're really not doing anything wrong. They're allowed to persistently call. 
Um, they can call your relatives, your employer, even your friends if they have that contact information. Uh, and if your debt's been co-signed, they have the right to communicate with a co-signer and seek payment. Now, when they call your, you know, your employer, your friends, they can't start to discuss your debt, but they can say, hey, we're trying to reach this person. We're having trouble. Do you have their contact information? And generally, people will read between the lines. Well, hey, this, why am I getting called about somebody else's debt? And it'd be a little bit embarrassing. Now, eventually, what can happen is if none of these strategies are bearing fruit, if the collectors aren't able to get their money back, if you know charging the extra fees and interest rates are, aren't, aren't bearing fruit, what creditors can do is they can take you to court. And this can happen once they've received a court judgment, they can get permission to take an asset such as a vehicle or even register a charge against your home as a way to secure their payment against the debt. And then finally, and most often, if somebody doesn't have an asset like a home they can register against, they can be permitted to garnish your income, which means a portion of your wages and other incomes get paid directly to your creditor until your debt is repaid. And they can even add their legal fees, their costs, extra interest charges on top of it. Um, provided they follow the right processes, wage garnishment can be undertaken by creditors like banks, credit card companies, collection agencies, private lenders, even an individual that you owe money to, and also the Canada Revenue Agency uh, is able to garnish for things like tax debt, student loans, and EI overpayments. Wow, it just sounds horrific. But I know that folks go through this, and, and if you're going through this right now, and this is all you need to know, this is the phone number for Sands & Associates. Talk to a licensed insolvency trustee and figure this out. There are lots of good remedies, and, and Blair, we're going to talk about those. The phone number, first, 1-800-661-3030. So a uh, question I've got, how long does it take for a garnishment to start for someone? Well, most creditors need to get two court orders for a wage garnishment, and that usually takes some time, generally a few weeks to a couple of months, because you have to be served by, for, by documents when you're being taken to court. So the first court order they have to get is what's called a judgment against you that confirms that you owe the creditor the debt. So if you don't believe it's a valid debt, when they're trying to get that judgment against you, you would show up in court and demand proof, well, show me this is a valid debt. You know, in most cases, people have a debt, they know it's valid, they're just not able to pay it so the creditor will be successful in getting that judgment once the creditor has this judgment against you they can then seek what's called a garnishing order and once they get the garnishing order that's when they contact your employer's payroll department they send them the garnishing order and they direct the employer's payroll department to withhold funds from your paycheck and remit the money to the court and after the money is placed in court, that's when the garnishing creditor can apply uh, to, to get those funds being, being held there. So it's a number of steps. It does take some time, but you have to be careful. You're not caught unaware, uh, caught unaware because sometimes people get to the point where they just stop opening their mail. They say they know it's all bad news and what does it really matter whether I open it or not? Well, it can really matter because if there's some upcoming court actions, the creditor can ask the court to even issue a warrant for your arrest if you're requested to appear and you don't do so. So you're never arrested for owing money in Canada. That's just not a thing. Um, but you could be arrested if there's a court action about the debt. You're asked to appear and you just ignore it. A warrant can be sent for your, your arrest. So you want to be careful about that. Uh, one important exception where I mentioned all of these steps, the two court hearings, the notice that you'll get, an exception to that is if you owe money to Canada Revenue Agency. 
So Canada Revenue Agency, being the government, they can shortcut many of the steps that I've just outlined. They don't have to get a judgment. They don't have to get a garnishing order. Uh, what they can do is they can skip those steps and they can just issue what's called a requirement to pay. And that's a notice that goes directly to your employer or even to a client if you're self-employed. And it would direct the, the employer or the client uh, to withhold whatever the certain percentage of funds would be and remit them directly to Canada Revenue Agency before they send money to you. So for a lot of people, they don't realize a garnishment is happening until they suddenly get short paid on their paycheck and they contact their HR department and then suddenly they're aware uh, of this court order or the CRA order that's been received. In terms of how much money can be taken, well, in the province of BC, it's up to 30% of your net income that can be garnished from each paycheck. Um, but it's important to know those limits do not apply to Canada Revenue Agency. Canada Revenue Agency can take up to 100% uh, of your paycheck if they want to, 100% of your self-employed income from a client, and even other income, which is completely safe from a bank garnishee, for example, things like CPP, OAS, and EI benefits, they can't be seized by a private creditor, but CRA can seize all of those things. So it's, in general, it's 30%, but it could be up to 100%, and there's a few streams of income that may be exempt, but not when you're dealing with the government. Okay. So can we spend the, I'm feeling quite depressed about this. Oh. Can we spend the last <laughs> few minutes yeah. <laughs> of this segment? Boy, oh boy, it just sounds like a nightmare for, for folks. Um, what are the options? What, what do I have? What can I do uh, to dispute or stop this kind of a garnishment? Well, you can do a lot. So I am happy what we're pivoting here because you're right. It is probably the worst situation you can imagine being. And as you worked for this hard-earned money, you're struggling to make ends meet and suddenly you're not getting your paycheck. Well, what can you do? So a couple things, you can decide to apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside. If you can prove to the court the order is causing you serious financial hardship or it isn't necessary to get payment of the debt, the court might agree. They might also agree to exempt a higher proportion of your wages. So you might say, well, I can't afford to have 30% taken from my paycheck, let's agree at 10%. And you can show the court a budget on why that's reasonable. Um, or you can work out informally a payment schedule with the creditor to say, okay, we can stop with all these court proceedings. You know, I'm going to gonna make a plan and stick to it to repay the debt. Now, that can work if you have the ability to repay this debt and can even afford even part of a garnishment. For the vast majority of people that we see, they just need immediate relief. They need this garnishment to stop. They need to start getting their paychecks and whatever they can repay is going to be a whole lot less than 30% or even 10% of their income because they just can't afford more than that. So what you can do to stop a garnishment is you can work with a licensed insolvency trustee to file either a consumer proposal or to declare bankruptcy. Both of those options, as soon as you file a proposal, for example, the trustee will send notice to the courts, notice to the employer. They can stop sending your wages to the creditor. They can start giving you your paycheck. Literally the day you sign on the documents, um, there's what's called the stay of proceedings, which means any proceedings against you have to stop. A garnishment is a proceeding against you, and that comes to a grinding halt. As soon as you file either a bankruptcy or a proposal, the next paycheck you receive after then, you should get at 100 percent of what you're owed. Wow, so it can happen that quickly. 
It certainly can. And as I mentioned early, you know, these are the top of the urgent of the urgent, the clients that we deal with. So quite often people will take a couple of weeks to have meetings, get all their documents together. Uh, we've turned around situations in 24 hours where someone said, I'm getting paid in a couple of days. I've got all my information ready. I need to get this started. So we react as quickly as we can. Uh, it's usually within a week or two, but it can be as short as a couple of days if someone needs that immediate relief. And I like this part of the segment where where we where we're going to talk about why it's such a good idea not to get to that place. I mean, if you are, there's help there. Sands and Associates is going to help you. But if you're in a, a bind, if you if you can feel that your debt is unmanageable and you don't know what to do, the first thing you can do is get a hold of uh, Sands and Associates and say, this is my situation. So that all this other stuff that we've just talked about isn't even in on the horizon for you. It, it's about starting to manage that debt. And, and it's just such a such a great uh, set of solutions. Can we talk a little bit about that, especially the warning signs that may not mm -hmm. be obvious for folks? Yeah, you know, from our experience, debt problems don't resolve themselves. So just ignoring them does not make things get better. They just get worse. And the most common warning signs are things, you know, that you, you wouldn't always think of as traditional financial warning signs, but are you constantly thinking about your debt? Are you feeling debt stressed, worried, or anxious about your finances? Um, are you stuck in a cycle where you're only making your minimum payments? And or are you relying on your credit cards to meet your cost of living? If any of those things talk to you, your current reality, you're not alone, especially in today's environment. It's very difficult to make headway with high costs, high interest rates, everything like that. So reach out for help before it gets to the time when your wages are being garnished. You don't need to wait for such a severe situation to get help. Yeah, and it's really a win-win situation because all you have to do is sit down with someone and say, this is my situation. And they'll, and they could say, oh, you know what? This is all you really need to do at this point, or we need to take these steps. Either way, it's, it's a, such a win for you. I hope you've, I hope there's some good information for folks listening to this segment. Uh, I just want to remind you the segment, the show is called Dollars and Cents. Blair Manton is who you've been listening to from Sands and Associates, and their whole purpose and goal is to help you get out of debt. We're going to talk about the types of debt that you can consolidate using either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. And this is going to be a good segment because it'll cover things from credit cards to taxes, student loans, vehicle financing, all of that stuff. Blair's going to break down the key differences in common consumer debt and explain which ones you consolidate and uh, look after with a consumer proposal or get forgiven in a per personal bankruptcy. So Blair, what are the most common types or categories of debt for somebody to have? You know, there's a couple ways to come at this question. And I've, you know, heard people say, you know, there's good debt and there's bad debt. And yeah, that's one way to categorize debt. Um, the way I look at it as a trustee is what are the ways our debt can impact you, especially if they're unpaid. So you can say, you know, debt is good or bad, but what does it mean if that debt goes unpaid? What's the impact upon yourself personally? What does it mean for you if you have to restructure a debt? And most debts we can categorize into various different buckets. And then you can see how they can be treated differently um, with respect to claims on your assets, your income, all those different factors. 
So a couple of the most common types of debt, the most common one by far is a general unsecured consumer debt. And it sounds like a bit of a mouthful, but what unsecured means is just that debt is not backed by an asset. The lender doesn't hold any collateral in exchange for giving you credit. So unless you structure it otherwise, uh, most types of debts fall into this unsecured debt category. That includes your standard credit cards, your basic overdraft. Um, so, you know, credit cards for six out of 10 people that we survey, that's their main cause of debt and a credit card is just about always an unsecured debt. Um, payday loans and personal loans, typically very high interest, very high cost financing. You usually don't pledge an asset when you go to take out a payday loan or a personal loan. So those are unsecured debts. Uh, cell phone plans and other utilities, uh, typically unsecured debts. You don't go and pledge an asset when you're signing for a new telephone or when you're getting BC Hydro set up. Uh, and then money owing to another person. So typically if you're borrowing money from a friend or family member, they're usually not getting you to form to sign a formal security arrangement. So it's typically an unsecured debt. So what happens if you can't make payments on basic unsecured debts is creditors can take some of the following steps. So they can charge you fees and penalties. So we all know if we miss a payment on the credit card, you know, the next bill has some nice charges on top of there. Uh, they can accumulate interest or increase your interest rates. So sometimes there's different interest rates that kick in if you have missed a payment. They can stop providing services. So someone like a cell phone provider or a hydro provider, you know, their recourse if unpaid is to cut you off quite often. Uh, what's usually the most impactful to an individual is they can engage a collection agency. So get someone involved to phone you morning, noon, and night and um, talk down to you, make you feel intimidated. All of those things are a recourse for an unsecured debt. And then finally, if you've borrowed from a bank with a credit card, um, they can exercise what's called the right of offset if you have your daily banking there. So if you missed a credit card payment uh, under Bank X and you have a, a a savings account with Bank X as well, they can go into your account and take money from that account. That's called the right of offset. They can offset your assets against the liability owing to them. So unsecured creditors, they lack some of the immediate power that other creditors have. And you know we'll talk about that in, in a minute, but just to be aware, an unsecured creditor, if they choose to take you to court, if they choose to hire a lawyer, go to court and get a judgment against you, their debt can get some of the characteristics of secured debt, which we're gonna talk about in a couple minutes, here, they could have more recourse where they could be able to seize assets or even seize wages. So it's possible for an unsecured debt to get a whole lot more teeth behind it, but it does require some extra legal steps, legal costs on behalf of the creditor to really escalate it to that point. Okay. So let's keep on this, um, on this vein. Uh, can you elaborate on the other types of debt where creditors have more recourse if they aren't paid? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one that people don't always think about when they're signing on the dotted line, but is co-signed debt. So co-signed debt means that both parties are jointly legally responsible for 100% of any debt that goes unpaid that's been co-signed, not a 50-50 portion as a lot of people think. A lot of people think, okay, I've got co-signer on this account, my worst case is it's 50-50. No, it's 100% liability if there's a co-signer. And what it means when you bring in a co-signer on a debt is that your creditor now has a whole other set of pockets to reach into if your debt is not paid in accordance with the borrowing terms. Um, and you should proceed with caution if you're ever asked to co-sign. Our advice is usually it's it's not a wise decision to make because if the other person defaults or doesn't make payments as agreed, you could be asked to pay the full balance immediately. It becomes due and payable, something that you had never contemplated. You thought you were just helping somebody out to get approved for some loan, and then suddenly all of that loan becomes due and payable yourself. So co-sign debt can be quite problematic. 
uh, government debt. So government debt by default is an unsecured debt, but the government can shortcut a bunch of the things I mentioned just a minute ago where I said, you know, an unsecured creditor has to sue you, has to take you to court before they can have a whole lot of recourse against you. Uh, the government can access collection methods like a wage garnishment or freezing your bank accounts, even placing a lien on your property. They can do all of that virtually overnight without suing you in court. Um, and, you know, they're not going to do this without any notice to you, but it can happen relatively quickly. And it's also important to know there's no statute of limitations on government debt. So we've talked on previous segments about consumer debts. If a number of years go by, people lose the right to be able to sue you. Government debt never expires. There's no statute of limitations. So things like income tax debt, GST debt, um, any benefit overpayments for CERB or EI or CPP, uh, even federal and provincial student loans, these are debts that you have to face head on at some point. They just never go away on their own. Um, the final category of debt is secured debt. And this makes sense if unsecured debt is where you haven't pledged any assets. Secured debt means that you have pledged an asset or multiple assets as collateral to a lender. So that means if you don't pay the debt, the lender has the right to seize something from you. And it's written right in the documents when you take out that, that financing. So the most common examples are things like a mortgage or vehicle financing. And those debts are secured by a creditor holding a lien on your home or your vehicle until you paid off the mortgage or the loan in full. So oftentimes banks might ask you to pledge an asset if you're looking for a consolidation loan. Um, you definitely want to be careful about that because you're basically giving them the right that if you don't pay on this loan, that asset can be seized from you. Um, and in some cases, a secured debt can be created after the fact. There are certain provisions for things like a mechanic or a builder's lien. If someone has done work for you and you haven't paid them, they can sometimes make a debt secured to your property. But the most common ones are a mortgage or a car loan. Um, those are your most common types of secured debt. Okay. So if you already know, if you're thinking, oh, okay, I, I need to take some action. If you know already that you want to sit down with somebody who's going to support you in making the best decision possible to deal with your debt situation with all the different options and all the different elements and all the different pieces that you get to sit down and talk to somebody who knows how to do this, give Sands and Associates a call and make that first appointment. It's 1-800-661-3030 or you can go to the website at sands-trustee.com. So um, we know that you, as a licensed insolvency trustee and licensed insolvency trustees across the country, have um, some good debt solutions that maybe people have heard about, maybe they haven't heard about. So can we spend a little bit, the last part of this segment, talking about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing I'd want people to know is when they say, okay, well, there's secured debt, there's unsecured, there's government debt. Well, what can a trustee actually help me with? The answer is all of it. A trustee mm -hmm. is the only professional that can help you with each category of those debts. So a consumer proposal is a great option that about 85% of clients that we deal with uh, choose to employ. And a consumer proposal allows you to legally consolidate all of your debt together. So all of your unsecured debts, um, put them into a single monthly payment, stop all of the interest and reduce it down to what you can afford. And to the extent that there are secured debts, a proposal gives you the option to say whether you want to continue with those debts or or not. So a lot of the times the most common secured debt is a as a vehicle financing. So when we sit down with someone, we say, okay, you've got this car, whatever it is, it might be worth $20,000. You have a loan where you owe about $25,000 on it. Would you like to continue making those payments so that you'll own the car at the end? 
Or do you want to use the reset of a proposal to say, okay, we're going to return the car to the lender. We're going to deal with any of the aftermath as part of this whole proceeding and kind of move on from there. So it's not an automatic thing that if you file a proposal or even a personal bankruptcy, that you have to stop any of your secured creditor obligations. Again, if you wanted to keep paying on that car, for example, you'd be free to do so. And same goes with a mortgage. So it's not an automatic thing that if you file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, you have to stop paying on your mortgage and your house gets sold. Um, you have the option to continue if you want to keep that obligation or if you need to walk away from that because you owe way more than what the asset is worth, then either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy can help in those situations. So everything like an unsecured debt that we've listed out from credit cards, overdrafts, payday loans, lines of credit, personal debts, no debts owing to another person, all of that can be included and dealt with when dealing with the trustee. And what's even more powerful when a lot of people think is that nobody has the power to reduce government debt. Well, nobody except for a licensed insolvency trust. So either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal can deal with all government debts like income tax, student loans, as long as you've been out of school for at least seven years, um, serve overpayments, essentially any amounts owing to government um, can be compromised, reduced and eliminated by working with a licensed insolvency trustee. Okay. Did you want to say anything more than that? Because I know we've got two minutes left and there's a couple of other sort of if you want to keep the asset, if you don't want to keep the asset in both situations. You know, I think one thing that could be useful for people to know when we talk about vehicle financing is the province of BC is unique amongst other provinces in Canada that I'm aware of, in that if you have a vehicle that's financed and you default on the payments, you stop making the payments, in a lot of other provinces, if that car is worth 20000 and you owe 25000 if they get that car back from you and they sell it at auction for 20000 for example, they're handing you a bill for the balance of what's unpaid on the loan. And most people think that's how it works in BC, but it's not. BC has a provision called seize or sue. And what that means is if you stop paying on a vehicle loan, uh, the creditor has to decide if they take the vehicle back from you, no matter what that vehicle sells for at auction, maybe that $20,000 car only recovered $10,000 at auction and the loan is for $25,000, it's the end of the obligation to you when you've surrendered that vehicle. So once they've seized the vehicle from you, if there's any shortfall, you're not responsible to it. So I have calls from people sometimes who say, you know, I owe 25000 on this car. I know I couldn't sell it for this amount. What should I do? The worst thing you could ever do is to sell the car yourself and pay back the debt partially because you're still going to owe the balance. The best thing is to actually default on that loan, let them come and get the car, and then that would extinguish the entire obligation. So all of these things a trustee will go through in great detail when you sit down and meet with us. But that's just one I wanted to highlight in our last minute here that seize or sue is something so important to know if you have a vehicle financing in BC that you think you might not want to continue with. And see, that's the advantage, folks, of talking to somebody who's a licensed insolvency trustee, because not everybody, one, may know that, two, know how to facilitate that. And a licensed insolvency trustee is the person, in this case, Blair, who he and Sands and Associates can facilitate that for you. And that's the beauty. That's the reason why uh, licensed insolvency trustees are the ones to see, because they have, there's just so much legal uh, power in the sense that they're, they're obliged to help you uh, take on these challenges, these debt problems and challenges. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. This segment, we're going to talk about 
And I'm going to assume that it's it doesn't involve a huge number of people, Blair, but it's about people who uh, end up having to do either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy more than once. How How usual or unusual is that? Well, it's more than I would have thought. Um, so the most recent statistics uh, based on 2021 from the superintendent of bankruptcy, they said essentially 21% of consumers who filed for bankruptcy or made a consumer proposal had previously filed for bankruptcy. So it's, it's a significant portion of people using the system more than once. And there can be different reasons for it. And we'll talk about yeah, all of that. What are they? Um, but yeah, but yeah it's, it's definitely it's a significant portion. Okay, good. So we so we know that's a fairly large number. Um, does having previously done a consumer proposal or having declared bankruptcy in any way disqualify you from enjoying or getting the benefits of either of those options in the future? And that's a great question, Elaine, because sometimes people think, okay, I've used the consumer proposal card. I can't do that again. Well, in, in you know, if life happens and it can be a pretty long life, you can file more than one consumer proposal. And there's literally no difference between a consumer proposal for a second. Um, I haven't seen many that are a third time, but it, it's possible. There's no difference with sub subsequent or successive consumer proposals later on in life. Um, similarly, you can file bankruptcy more than once, but there are some differences when it's a second or even a third time bankruptcy. And for a lot of people, you know, the the problems that cause them to need our help to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal, there are things that are completely outside of their control, things that never they would expect to have happened to them. Sometimes it's a job loss, uh, a medical issue, a relationship breakdown. And well, sometimes those things can happen more than once in life. So it's not always the case that, you know, someone just mismanaged them, their affairs very terribly, um, you know, once and then they do the same thing again and, and need the help of an insolvency. Quite often it can be two completely unrelated circumstances circumstances, you know, maybe they were divorced 20 or 30 years ago, and now they've retired and they've just had a medical issue, completely different circumstances. And in each of those situations, uh, the person is able to avail themselves of the remedies available um, to deal with their death through Canadian law. Okay, so let's go through those uh, key facts that you think that Sands and Associates thinks people should know about before they take the next step, let's say. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to know is just, well, what are the options? So if someone is listening and they've never previously done a bankruptcy or a proposal, well, let's explain what we're actually talking about here. So a consumer proposal, it allows you to consolidate all of your debt without borrowing. And along with putting it all together into one single payment, it allows you to stop all the interest and reduce the debt down to what you can actually afford to repay. Often the reductions are in the neighborhood of 50 to 80% of the total debt is written off and you pay the balance, sometimes as little as 20 cents on the dollar. For a proposal to, to succeed, you don't need everybody that you owe money to, uh, to agree to it, but you need 50% by dollar value to say yes. Uh, a proposal is binding on just about every type of debt, so even including government debt, things like taxes or CERB overpayments or student loans. Um, just about any debt can be significantly reduced by doing a consumer proposal. And as I alluded to earlier, the consumer proposal, it's the same steps every time. Even if you've previously done a consumer proposal or previously filed a bankruptcy, your proposal and the new situation doesn't have any extra steps to it. There's no extra penalties to it. 
uh, and you don't actually have to use the same licensed insolvency trustee. So at Sands and Associates, we have a lot of people coming to us saying, okay, it was the 1980s. I worked with a trustee at that point. They're no longer around. Um, can you guys help me? And absolutely, when you're looking towards a second uh, consumer proposal or even a personal bankruptcy, you can choose the trustee that you want to work with. So if, if, if there's someone who's listening at this moment goes, oh, okay, all right, this is the situation I know that I'm in. I've done this before. Here's the next steps. Check out their website at Sands & Associates at sands-trustee.com or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 and set up that first appointment and, uh, and go from there. How many times, um, now you sort of alluded to it, or not, not even alluded to it, said that pretty rare, maybe somebody would do a consumer proposal twice, but you've not run into someone who's maybe had to do it um, a third time. Is there a limit on the number of times that somebody could potentially do one? There's no limit. Um, I've definitely had people who are doing their second proposal and sometimes their first one was, you know, just a few years ago, five or 10 years ago. Um, I can bet there will be people that will have to do three proposals or perhaps more in their life. And again, could be for completely unrelated circumstances. Uh, but again, the takeaway is that there's really no difference. It's all whether your creditors will accept that proposal or not. Um, you know, sometimes if it's the same creditors that you're dealing with again and again, and specifically if it's an income tax driven proposal, proposal, you know, the first proposal, if it was for a failure to remit income taxes, the government might assume, you know, the best of your intentions and really understand your situation and want to work with you. If it's a second proposal for income taxes, they might be a little bit more leery. Uh, a third proposal for income taxes, I would bet they're going to want either more money uh, or some extra compliance saying, well, you have to confirm you're up to date with all of your taxes at every stage of the proposal. So there can be some things your creditors individually might make a little bit more difficult if you're doing a subsequent proposal. Um, but, you know, the letter of the law says if the creditors will accept it, um, then essentially the proposal can succeed. Uh, one thing that's important to know, too, is about the credit rating impact um, of a multiple proposals. Now, this is quite different than a bankruptcy. If you do a first bankruptcy, it's on your credit bureau for six years after you finish it. A second bankruptcy is 14 years after you finish it. So very punitive doing a second bankruptcy. With a consumer proposal, the credit rating impact is the same each time. There's no additional bad credit impact that happens from having to do a second uh, or even a third consumer proposal. And the way a consumer proposal actually reflects on your credit report is for six years from the day that you sign that proposal or for three years from the day you pay off that proposal, whatever is shorter. So if it's, you know, a lump sum proposal, it's a payment that's over and done with quickly. It's only on your bureau for three years. Uh, whatever the, those rules dictate is exactly the same for every proposal. So there's not a situation where a second proposal would be longer on your credit than a first proposal had been. One of the things that strikes me, Blair, is that we talk an awful lot about people who sort of are in a, a, a state of denial, like, oh, I don't know what to do, or I don't know, yeah, I don't have a clue what to do, and, you know, maybe it's not that bad, maybe I can do this, maybe to do that. And that's why I'd like to sort of go to the, the last piece of this segment that we've sort of scripted out for the listener, um, the things, the warning signs uh, that everybody should be watching out for, and if it helps just one person go, oh yeah, I do have an issue, I need to take some steps. I thought it'd be worth it if we, if we ended this segment by going over those ones. 
I think that that's a great idea, Elena, for somebody listening, you know, if, if one or two of these might be resonating, uh, that might be enough to spur you to have a conversation that could really exactly. result in your, in your turning things around. Yeah, so it's important. Thinking. Yeah, it's important to know too, warning signs now might be completely different than warning signs you had had 15 or 20 years ago if you previously had done a proposal. So you might say, well, this doesn't feel the same as last time, um, but still, you still might need the help. So the most common warning signs are if you're in a repayment plan that's going to keep you in debt for a very long time, so more than five years. So if you're only making minimum payments on your credit cards, for example, that's a repayment plan that's going to take decades. Um, a big one is if you're feeling overwhelming stress or worry about your debt or financial affairs, maybe you're constantly thinking about your debt. We often say, you know, if you think you have a debt problem, you're generally right. And you know, your gut is going to tell you uh, whether you're comfortable or not. Uh, if you're relying on credit every month to make up some gaps with your income, you're just not able to pay things from your paycheck and the credit card balances grow each month. Um, if you're moving money around, you're taking money from one card to pay another card, for example, that never has a good ending. Uh, and then finally, the very you know drastic in your face of collection calls, court actions, or wage or account seizures, any of those types of warning signs are a good indication you'd benefit from having a free conversation with a licensed insolvency trustee. Great. I think that's really important just to mention those things. My, my hope is that somebody would have heard one thing and went, oh, no, I need to do something. And, and this is the steps to take. So if you're even if you're just looking for some advice about how to deal with your debt or you want to take a bigger action, Sands and Associates is where to go. So you can book your free, confidential, non-judgmental debt consult, uh, consultation by calling this number 1-800-661-3030 or the website sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. This segment we're talking about, and this I would think is sort of an age-old issue when it comes to debt, uh, and talking about people who have partners. Are you responsible for paying your spouse's creditors? If you're entering into a relationship or you've been in the relationship for quite some time and all of a sudden you become aware that, uh-oh, they're dealing with something that I'm not. So Blair's going to explain how a spouse's debts do and don't impact each other, as well as some tips for couples dealing with debt and where you can get um, where you can get some help with a, a problem debt. So I guess number one, Blair, am I responsible for paying my spouse or common law partners creditors? And with that, doesn't it make a difference if the debt happened or was incurred before or after we met? Like, does that impact it? Well, yes, Elaine, it, it does. And and this is a, an important segment, I think, because a lot of people really assume they know the answer to this question. And just about everybody, when I ask them and they give me their assumed answer, it's not correct. So giving you the fact here, most people are surprised to learn in Canada that relationships alone, whether it's marriage, common law, familiar relationships, they do not create any automatic responsibility for repaying someone else's debt. So simply put, you're not responsible for paying your spouse's credit for their debts just because they're your spouse or common law partner and your credit history isn't shared either. 
it's a common misconception that spouses become legally responsible for repaying other people's debt once they're married. I remember hearing the expression, oh, you marry somebody, you marry their debt. Well, you just don't. There's just no truth to that at all. You're not responsible for repaying the debts of your spouse or your partner just because you're married, cohabitated, uh, even, God forbid, upon their death. You don't inherit a debt that you suddenly weren't on the hook for before just because you're married to somebody. Now, what can happen, what can trigger spousal debt, um, it can be triggered in two main ways. One is very specifically signing and taking on a joint liability by co-signing or guaranteeing somebody else's debt. So if you as a couple go in and you apply for credit in both of your names, well, obviously you are both responsible for it. Uh, if one of you had an existing credit line and you decided, you know, the bank would only increase the limit by getting somebody else to be a personal guarantor like your spouse, well, then you're both responsible. But in those cases, you've explicitly done something. Both spouses have explicitly signed to be responsible for that debt. So that should never come as a surprise. That should be something where eyes are wide open. The second example of how a debt can be shared amongst spouse um, is a debt can be deemed a family debt um, and that can become divided following the act of separation or divorce under BC's Family Law Act. So let's say a couple gets married and for whatever reason one spouse incurs a bunch of debt and it's to the benefit of the family unit. Um, if there's a dissolution of that marriage or relationship, well then that debt can be split as between the spouses. So let's say the husband incurred all of the debt, he can make a claim to the wife saying, okay, well, then the wife should be responsible for half of this and she should be obligated to pay him back. Again, that's only on the dissolution or the breakdown of the relationship. Uh, if there was no relationship breakdown, that debt would still just be in one person's name. Now, just because the debt's in one person's name doesn't mean it doesn't have impact on the other person in the relationship. You know, of course, there's the financial stress, the worry about the cost of the debt action. Um, sometimes the assets that you own jointly could be at risk. If you have a joint bank account, perhaps some money could be taken from there. Um, if you're both untitled to a real estate and one spouse is getting sued, well, then that charge can be placed against that real estate. So it's not that there's no impact to the other partner, but the strictly speaking, that question question, you know, do you marry somebody's debt? Are spouses responsible for each other's debt? It's a resounding and definitive no. Okay. But that, do that doesn't stop you from knowing that at this point, like getting some help and, and some solutions or support in dealing it, uh, with that is just the best idea. And I know that a licensed insolvency trustee, that's the place to go for so many reasons, including the fact that they're federally regulated and they're going to look after you properly and within the bounds of law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what are some of the solutions that, that you'd be able to offer if somebody walked in the door with that situation, Blair? Well, often the best way for a spouse to support another spouse if they're going through a debt problem is to connect them with the right resources and make them aware of the solutions that already exist. So just because one spouse might have money sufficient to pay off another spouse's debt doesn't mean that's the right answer. And what we definitely recommend is for every couple, if they're incurring debt, to investigate the option of a consumer proposal. And a consumer proposal consolidates all of the debt together. Uh, there's no borrowing required, no credit 
credit rating qualifier uh, and no cosigner responsible either. And oftentimes the, the debt is significantly reduced down. So if one spouse incurred a ton of debt, they could file a consumer proposal themselves, uh, reduce the debt down to what they can afford to repay and have no impact whatsoever on the credit rating assets or income uh, of the other spouse who's not responsible for that debt. And just to give you some examples using numbers, so let's say the debt balance was $20,000 and maybe it's on credit cards. So every month, you know, high interest costs, just treading water, making minimum payments, doing a consumer proposal to repay 30% of that balance, which is right in the ballpark where most proposals sit, that would be a payment of just $165 per month over 36 months. So some people would be doing a double take. You're telling me $20,000 a debt can go away in three years at $165 per month exactly the case and that's the power of a consumer proposal and let's go to that example if one spouse had financial resources and could help to pay the debt off in full well i would suggest the spouse with debt filing a consumer proposal reducing it down to maybe 30 percent of the balance that's the time to help that person pay off the debt and then the couple is that much better off with that extra savings that they now have together they can invest put together an emergency fund and hopefully not end up in a similar situation where one of them has to incur some debt. So a consumer proposal is a great option. Again, it can be done uh, just by one partner. Now, it is also possible to do what's called a joint consumer proposal. So in the event that couples do have some debts together, they don't have to all be shared, but a consumer proposal can allow the couple collectively to make one consolidated payment, pay no interest, and have that debt significantly reduced down to what they can actually afford. Excellent. I, I know that you in our last couple of minutes in this segment, you've got some really good tips and advice uh, that are specifically for couples when it comes to debt. And, and I'd, I'd love to cover just a couple of those if we could. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. And some of them, you know, it can be a little bit on the uncomfortable side, but it's, it's all worth it. You know, everything that you ever want is on the other side of discomfort, I've heard said. And you know, that the number one piece of advice is to not try to hide your money troubles or your financial issues. You really want to have open and ongoing conversations about money matters and share the responsibility for managing your household finances. Um, so you really want to view your partner as someone that can support you, not somebody that you're worried about judging you when they actually find out how bad your situation is. So keeping that financial transparency at every stage of the relationship is just so important. Um, a couple of pitfalls is you really want to be cautious before you co-sign any debt or take on any joint debt with another person. Um, you're not going to be suddenly making all your debt joint by being married, but then if you suddenly go out and start applying for everything together, you might be in a situation where now you are very inextricably tied together, and there's usually not a whole lot of benefit to that. What a lot of people don't realize when they co-sign a debt for somebody else is that it's not a 50-50 liability. So it's not that, well, if my husband or wife doesn't pay, I'm on the hook for 50 cents of this debt. No, it's what's called a joint and several liability, which means you could be required to pay the whole amount back. So you have to be very cautious. We generally say it's almost never a good idea to co-sign somebody else's debt or even to apply for credit jointly. It's always better to keep things separate. Yeah, really good advice. Um, and I, I want to end the segment too by just reminding if any part of what we've been talking about 
just even slightly resonates with you and you sort of are wondering, oh boy, does that fit us? Is that something that we should be paying attention to? It's just such a good idea to sit down with somebody from Sands and Associates and, and say, okay, this is our situation. What do you think we should do? And that's what they're there for. Uh, the phone number to use, 1-800-661-3030. They've got a terrific website, which may answer some of your questions as well. It's well-written and well-thought-out, and that's sands-trustee.com. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.